You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to the film podcast. And yes, we have changed our name from Shoot It Now to the film podcast. It seems that in certain parts of the world, we were being confused for a gun podcast. And I don't like guns. I actually hate guns. So we didn't want a film podcast for filmmakers to have any confusion with bullets going into a gun chamber. We knew we had a problem when we received an email from someone suggesting that we do an episode on a particular type of automatic assault rifle. So that was it. And my guest on the film podcast is a filmmaker with over 30 DOP credits to his name, including the TV series Lethal Weapon, Minority Report, Graceland, Fringe and Smallville. Let's welcome in David Moxness to the film podcast. G'day, David. G'day, Craig. Thank you. Great to have you on. And I should also mention that Amazon Prime has a new series dropping very soon called The Wheel of Time, starring Rosamund Pike, which, David, you are a cinematographer on, and we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, first off, though, you're one of those hybrid cinematographers coming from film into digital, and you've been through that whole revolution of change. Of course, the role of a director of photography is constant learning. It's a mandatory requirement, really, of the job. And I'd like to ask you, is there anything over the last five years in terms of new technology that you really like as a cinematographer, which helps you with making your job just that little bit easier. Yeah, well, you're you're right about uh, so many changes and continual changes. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with the new technologies and whatnot. But I think some of the thing that I don't know if it's made it easier, but something that I've enjoyed is we can do some live grading and at least reference grading on set quite efficiently now, and it really allows me to keep my thumbprint on the particular project and send it into post production with a solid roadmap, at least from my end of things, as to how I I see the final image being. So often in television over the years, you shoot it and then it goes off to, you might be in one end of the country and post is happening in the other and it's limited to be involved to the post process in terms of imagery. So I find with some of these new technologies now being much more efficient on the day that we can kind of keep our thumbprint on it and, and give a good guide through post visually, at least have a, a solid communication uh, with the team there. So I think that's super beneficial. You know, those LUTs that you're talking about, there's so many different versions. It's like, how do you choose? Yeah, it's true. The way I approach it, it's kind of specific to the work that you're you're doing. So I'll work in pre-production to sort of design and build a LUT that will cater to the to the show, to the particular project. My approach is kind of like back in the film days, we had a handful of film stocks we could use too, and some would be on my radar and, and some wouldn't be because of their characteristics. Just coming back to that sort of a grade look that you're getting on the monitor, have you got a favorite monitor? Because these monitors now, I mean, they're just so good, aren't they? I mean, you're sitting there and it's like watching your movie as it's yeah. playing out. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of Sony monitors that are pretty traditional to use. Flanders Scientific makes a couple that I, or one that I really like as well. I'm fuzzy on the model numbers all the time. I always have to ask the team uh, <laughs> and look at my, my notes in, in the book. But usually for me, it's a, a Sony or a, a Flanders Scientific. 
you've directed as well as being a cinematographer. I think you did an episode on Fringe many years ago. Most yeah. cinematographers, they they like to stay away from directing once they're locked into doing the whole cinematography thing. Tell me, what was that experience like when you switched from cinematographer into actually directing? Yeah, it, it was really good. I mean, it was, it was a lovely opportunity I was given to do that. And, and I think, you know, it made me a better cinematographer, I, I hope anyways. You know, I always had an understanding, or at least I thought the, I had an understanding of how the director worked with the actors, not even on, on set so much, but just, you know, just sort of through prep and, um, and, and during the shoot with their character and, and whatnot. So I, I have a real sort of solid understanding of that. And now having had conversations with, with actors in the directorial position, I understand the conversations more that the, the director is having with the cast members. It was a really good insight. So I, I feel it's maybe a better, hopefully it's maybe a better cinematographer with kind of that understanding of what's happening in, in their heads. Amazon Prime, as mentioned, has this new series coming very soon starring Rosamund Pike called The Wheel of Time, adapted from the series of books. I think 15 books in total. The book debuted back in 1990 by author Robert Jordan, captivating millions of readers around the world. David, tell us a little bit about behind the camera stuff here. It's an Amazon Prime production, so presumably you've got the big toys to play with yeah it's a it's a wonderful show that we've uh, put together here it is a big cast and uh, and a lot of moving parts uh, for sure we're shooting on the uh, sony venice cameras we have four sort of bodies that we carry full time essentially i see it as a two camera show a and b camera show and a wonderful journey the last almost <laughs> three years we've shut down for for covid in 2020 of course for the most part it's been terrific i'm excited for everyone to see it shortly the piece, it's an ensemble piece, a number of actors to work with. Looks like the ADs have got their work cut out on this show. Yeah, yeah. Scheduling uh, is, is definitely a, a trick, and our uh, AD and uh, production team manage that, that very well. They do have their hands full, but uh, they, they do a very good job. And on a big production like The Wheel of Time, how many gaffers are there? Because I presume that there's more than just one team working on the pre-lighting scene. Yes, essentially. I mean, I have a, a gaffer and their crew with, with me. In combination with that, we have a, a rigging gaffer and, and their team. So we all work together uh, doing the lighting plots and design. We did a block of two episodes per rotation of DP and, and director. So I did the, the first block of first two episodes. So have you got a steady cam operator on the show doing some of these longer tracking shots? Yeah, yeah. First season, we had a terrific uh, steady cam operator from uh, Berlin by the name of Benjamin Trepling. It's just uh, terrific. He was my A camera steady cam operator did some wonderful pieces for us uh, on, on the Steadicam. A terrific guy, not only Steadicam operator, but a very gifted camera operator as well. So it was a real, real treat having uh, Benjamin with us. And what sort of lighting are you going for in terms of look? Uh, are we dealing with sort of darks and shadows? Oh, yeah, 100%. So the story isn't contemporary. So we, we don't have any artificial light sources to take advantage of. So that we don't have any street lamps or, or neon signs or light bulbs or car headlights to take advantage of. It's, it's either the sun, the moon or candles or torchlight. 
or in the wilderness a lot. So you can you can imagine our our night exterior work all good uh, challenges to have, but definitely uh, there's a uh, there's shadow, <laughs> dark and shadow. But it's nice. Uh, the approach has been to sort of keep it grounded in realism. So it's obviously a fantasy piece, but not not sort of crossing into um, you know a sci-fi realm or something like that. So always trying to keep the visuals grounded in 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 reality, uh, motivated by what the light source might be, sunlight coming through windows or torches or candles or a fire or something like that so very much trying to keep all the visuals grounded in reality not too stressful david because you know <laughs> when you're dealing with candles it can get a little bit stressful just in setup time yeah yeah for sure you know and there's that fine line too where the candles and the fires kind of lose their color if you don't have enough exposure augmenting uh, so that that's a bit tricky you know, back to the technology f- for a moment, you know, in, in, in terms of choosing a camera for this piece, one thing that put the uh, Venice on my radar was its uh, native dual ISO setting. You know, it's native 500 and 2500. And the 2500 is, is really quite quite clean. And this is the f- the first project that I, I shot solely with the Venice. I had tested, you know, tested and tested in the rental houses and stuff. I'd never done a full piece with it. But I talked to a lot of number of other cinematographers and found that a number of them were using the 2500 regardless, um, whether it was, you know, day exterior, <laughs> night exterior, interior. So I felt with our landscape, our, so many night exteriors out in, in the landscape, not really a big source to work from necessarily that would be existing that I would use the Venice and I, I'm really glad we did. And it holds up really well. And even with the the fires and torches and candles and you know, it allows you to uh, have those set prop pieces actually really do a lot of the lighting or at least motivate the, the lighting, which is super beneficial. It sounds like you're going to have some great Vista shots, which kind of leads me into thinking about Ben Lucas, an Australian director I was talking to last week, and we were discussing the whole argument now of creating content for devices that people are watching content on and how filmmaking is slowly changing to adapt to more closer coverage for the device watching as opposed to the wider shots. Is this something that you've noticed yourself with your own work? Has there been any sort of talk about the devices and the fact that, you know, a lot of people watching it on small screens? With regards to this project, I haven't had any specific conversations about that. In general, I, I agree that it does seem to be, um, I haven't had it ever mandated to me, but I, I can see the desire to lean into that. I, I feel coming from studio networks, uh, producers and, and, and some directors, I find it a little odd personally is I feel that it's a tail wagging a dog a little bit in, in a way for me because I still think you should shoot the, the storytelling is like the most important thing. So I think you, you have to shoot the story and what complements that, you know, in terms of lensing, is it, are you on like long lenses or are you, you know, closer and wider, you know, do you let scenes play out in wider shots or do you, do you cover every single line in a close up, you know, depending on how, how you wish to tell the story or even just the story of that particular scene. So, you know, I'm still old school that way that, it, you know, my, my instinct is to, to do that and, and not cater to, you know, a device that the audience might be watching on, you know. You know, I was thinking about this last week, this whole shrinking the coverage size to suit a device. And it's possible that in the future, you could have two options to watch something. 
the device option would be option one, or the cinematic option, which would be option two. And of course, you will pay premium for the cinematic version. You know, yeah. who's to say that in five years' time, there are not these two options so that if anybody wants to watch something on their device, it's option one. People like you and I and a whole lot of others that want to watch the cinematic version, it's option two that you pay a premium for. Yeah, it sounds like a lovely idea. And uh, the way things move so fast, it probably won't be five years. It'll probably be three. <laughs> but I'll take it. That would be awesome. <laughs> You know, editorial now, because everything is coming in at 6K, so the reframing of everything, I mean, it's such a big deal. You can be shooting something a little bit away, and, you know, that decision is is made, look, we want everything a little bit tighter, and it's just happening so much quicker. Yeah, it, it does happen. But I think, you know, I think that it comes down to you just have to have as good as you can, the best relationship you can have with the, the producers and, and the directors and the post team to, you know, to collaborate. You know, if I see things, you know, coming out of edits and I go like, oh, okay, wasn't well, that, you know, I'll say like, is, is that where we're headed? Like collectively, if, if that's what we want, I mean, we can let me shoot and, and, and cater to that. Otherwise, why am I shooting something that in the end, you know, the desire is to be something else? I mean, I can certainly cater to they want versus them taking what we shot and, and trying to manipulate it into what they see it being in the end uh, from there into things in editorial. So I think it's about having good communication. And a show like The Wheel of Time, how many cines are there on the show? Uh, last year, it was myself and uh, David Luther. And this season, it's myself, Maya Zamoja, and uh, Stephen Fuhrberg. The reason I ask is that cines traditionally will always have a look at the episodes. There's obviously a discussion as a group in terms of what is trying to be achieved. So... How has that all sort of played out and worked on the show with the collaboration with the other cinematographers? Yeah, it's it's been fine. Uh, we're just getting going now in the second season, so Stephen hasn't started and Maya is, is just starting to go. But uh, when I worked with David last year, it was great. I, I came in and did the, the first first block and, and sort of set up the show. And we had, you know, some conversations. He looked at the material that we had been shooting and we, uh, we discussed some things on set and, and walked through the sets that we had and explained the, uh, the approach. Every cinematographer that I collaborate on one piece with is, you know, I always tell them to put your thumbprint on it also, though, you know, like, I mean, this is the this is the style and the visual of the show, but put your thumbprint on it. And, and the way this show is in, in terms of particular story and we have different storylines and, and different locations, uh, sort of, I think there's a little bit more flexibility, you know, for them to, to do their thing as well and still keep it in the vein of the show, but but not feel constrained by I set up initially. And a question I always like to ask a cine is how they deal and manage a director who may not always know how to explain what they want to a DP to articulate their vision for a film. Or perhaps they are just unable to express their intention of what the film's objective is. Well, the greatest thing is all, all of us uh, cines are all psychologists, so it's very easy <laughs> for us. <laughs> It's tricky. I mean, certainly 
you know, as time goes by and you get more experience and you experience more directors, you can kind of pick up pretty quickly on uh, ones that have a more difficult time being uh, precise in, in describing how they see things unfolding. Again, for me, it comes down to communication, you know, and it's just a matter of being able to communicate, you know, their, their desires and, and, and trying to just get an understanding. And then once you have that, you can go forward and, and say, oh, you know, here's an idea. What if we did this? And it's tricky sometimes, you know, I mean, everybody's different. Some directors are really, you know, precise and, and very, you know, easy to, for them to describe uh, how they see it and others have a more difficult time. So yeah, it's just trying to get on the same page. And, you know, it goes the other way sometimes too. A particular director, you know, might not be seeing the show in the way that uh, it's been set up if they come in on a, a later episode or something. And I find that a fine line as well. You know, I never want to handcuff or stifle a director too much because I, I feel that, oh, maybe they're going to find something that we haven't discovered yet, which is actually really good or really right for, for our show. So, you know, you let that, you know, piece of string un, unwind from the ball for, for a little bit to <laughs> see, and you know, can't let it get too far if then we start getting into things that's really not right for the show. But, you know, I definitely want every director to be able to have their opportunity to put their thumbprint on it as I have the, you know, fellow cinematographers do the same. Yeah, it becomes a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? A standalone film is one thing, but a a series on something like what you're currently doing for Amazon Prime and Sony, yeah, a director coming in, if they do go off on a bit of a tangent, you you do have to kind of reel them in a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. One reason I like to alternate uh, with other cinematographers, it gives me time with the script and the director and the production designer locations in, in prep. You know, hopefully these conversations should be able to happen in prep so that we get to the floor. We've already have an understanding of how we wish to proceed. You know, it should be able to flag if the director has a completely different vision. We, myself, the producers, production designer feel that the, the show is that then we can have those conversations and, and get to a, an understanding before we, we start shooting. Cinematography isn't an exact science. No two cinematographers are the same and no two cine's styles are the same. So with that in mind, before you became a cinematographer, what are some of the things that you were observing from other cinematographers that kind of you took notice of and wanted to adapt into your own work? Cinematographers that I, I really admired were, were the ones that put the, the work first, but also I watched how they managed crews or how they didn't manage crews. It was quite a different time too when I, when I grew up in, in the industry. It was really interesting to see that play out and relationships they had. And then obvious things in terms of like, you know, lighting approaches or lens approaches, you know, camera placement, composition like that. And I, I was very fortunate to work with uh, one cinematographer in particular for a long time and, and a few others in, in commercials that really kind of took me under their wing. I spent a lot of time with them and it was the best training I could ever get. I could ask any question I wanted, like, why that lens? Why not this one? You know, why that filter? What is that doing exactly? You know, why did you put a light through the window, but then also added one in the room? Yeah, just invaluable information for sure. So it was just kind of like kind of observing. I mean, a cinematographer's job is is thick. I mean, we, it's not just camera and lighting. It's, it's a lot of things. A lot of it's relationships and, and in these bigger shows, managing managing crews, managing different departments, uh, 
everything that everyone does in the whole picture, in my mind, filters down to the, to the camera. I feel like sometimes these days the camera department or cinematographer starts getting pushed to the side a little bit. Oh, don't worry, let's go let's shoot. And, and I see it's like everybody's hard work. Camera captures every single member of the production's hard work and effort cast into one thing and spits it out at the end of the day for us to say, oh, look, we should be proud of what we did. Look what we did. So I was really kind of watching these cinematographers as I was growing up in the industry as to how they sort of managed all of that. And you talk about time management. DPs themselves are under the pump for time, for setups. A DP has got to have good management of time. They manage the camera department, the lighting as well. Those interactions too with you know, departments like the production designer, the art department, they take time. Management skills, you need to be able to pull all of that off because there are a lot of moving parts to make sure that you've got that sort of under control. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Management is, is a big part of the cinematographer's job. As you say, coordinating with all those different departments and, you know, uh, one speed bump in, in any area will affect your day. So it's just like having good collaboration, good communication with, with all those departments is, is vital. And, you know, your head's always on a swivel, just sort of like trying to be able to anticipate or, or flag a, a particular problem or, or issue just to, uh, to try to keep you, keep you on schedule. It was interesting, David, last night I was watching the Michael Schumacher documentary, which showed him when he was with Ferrari. And at that time, they were having problems with the car. And instead of when everybody else left for the day, instead of Schumacher going to a nice restaurant, he remained with the mechanics in the garage late into the night trying to help fix the problem. So he might have been a, a great cinematographer. And sometimes there are those real problems for a DP, which requires a bit of a workaround. Have you had a situation in your career when something has gone totally pear-shaped that you can share with our indie filmmakers, something that has turned to custard and you've thought, crap, this is a, a headache, a problem that I don't need, but it's over to you to fix it? Yeah, there's been there's been quite quite a few, uh, too many. I barely think of one. This seems to happen so <laughs> so often. But yeah, you know, sometimes it can be simple things. I mean, we had one just the other day. We were on a location, and you know, we'd been prepping it for for a long time, and it was the weather that went against us. It was just like you know, what do, what do we do? Because schedule wise, we wouldn't have the opportunity to go back. We were on a, a distant location, and we just there's just no way to to go back. We thought about we had one more day at this distant location. We we're trying to figure out if we could do it the next day. And so we just had to just kind of rethink our visual approach to that that sequence. And it was kind of an important character sequence. And the actor had prepared themselves for some time for it. So we took a completely different visual approach. And the actor came and, and we shot it. And his performance was just so off the charts amazing that it all worked. You know, again, we, we catered to the story with what we had to work with completely different than we've been talking for months about and how we really felt it had to be this, you know, our showrunner was there and he said, this is awesome. This is like no problem at all. He said that 
I know this is like clearly a 180 plus from what we talked about, but I, I'm good. And it, it was part and part, you know, the, the actor's performance was so great. And it was just that we as a group, myself, the AD, camera department, gaffers, we just sort of said, okay, this is what we've got. How about this? And yeah, it was fantastic. So again, having a good team around you that can keep story and, and production in mind. And then the actor that came in and just knocked it out of the park and just all fell together. So it can be the simplest thing sometimes. It just can be the biggest hurdle, but they can be managed. Oh, it sounds like that Michael Schumacher story. Yeah. You know, it comes just again down to experience. Like so many of us uh, have been in similar situations before and it was just like, okay, you know, the, you know, the boat's got a leak, but it doesn't have to sink. What, what, what can we do collectively to, to tell this story and, you know, keep it interesting and visual and, and do it in a proper and meaningful way. And yeah, we did it. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. And talking about that experience, you were a gaffer before stepping into the cinematography role. What was that jumping off point for you switching to DP? Was it confidence within, like a certain skill set of knowledge that you had acquired up until that point where that jumping off point just felt like a natural transition for you? Sort of, yeah. I was very fortunate to be a gaffer for quite some time. Because lighting and camera and it all kind of goes together and uh, they just showed me all aspects of that, which was amazing. And and I, I didn't have like a, a huge initial urge to to make the leap and, and be a cinematographer. I had a family at a very young age. And so many years there were, it was, you know, simply paying the rent, quite honestly. And, and I was very fortunate to be gaffing a lot and having work and, and working with, you know, really wonderful cinematographers and, and production designers. So you know, it was it was all really good for me. A few years before I kind of officially started shooting full time, I had a lot of people saying, "Oh, you should just shoot. You should just shoot. You should just shoot." And I was like, and I felt like, you know, it's easy to get the first job. It's the second and third job that's harder because it's going to be based on the first one. And I just didn't want to sort of. I was. I think I was nervous to take the chance that it didn't work out, and then. Not that I wouldn't be a gaffer again, and not that, oh, I didn't make it as a cinematographer. It's just like, it, it, I was just comfortable where I was, you know. I, my family was, was well. I, I could support them, and, and we, we, you know, we were doing well. And I was just afraid that it would change for them. And then I got the opportunity, I was on a television series, to shoot the last couple episodes of, of one season. And I did that, and it went well. And they hired me to shoot the next season, and then it kind of continued from there. And I, I just continued on. So super, super fortunate. And what sort of cinematography at the moment gets you excited? Any and all of it, but there's just, man, there's some terrific material coming out by uh, so many great cinematographers these days. It's just like, you know, I think in some ways it's uh, the technology has really allowed people to get the material out to everyone easier and sooner. You know, back in my day, you know, somebody's basement or rent a church hall and (laughs) staple a bed sheet up and get a projector and put some posters up on some telephone poles to try to get an audience. You know, now you can get things online and get out there. And it's wonderful to see all these cinematographers that you had no idea existed or out there, the young kids and this amazing work that they're doing. Yeah, it's incredible. Love it. Well, David, thank you for your insights into your cinematography career and the advice. I'm sure our indie filmmakers will take away from this episode. So good luck with any upcoming projects. And of course, the very best of luck for the the series, the show that's coming up. And thanks for talking to us on the film podcast. 
Yeah, cheers, Craig. My my pleasure. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. And uh, to everyone out there, just just shoot, go for it, enjoy it. You can learn from uh, every moment, every experience. Yeah, just have some fun. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.